Would you pray with me as we begin today? We're going to bust the book here in just a second. Father God, I thank you that we can come in this way to worship you today. Uh, we, we come with heart and soul and mind. We come during this time to focus our attention on who you are according to your word and what you have done. Father, during these strange days, I pray that you would purify your church across this land, across this world. I pray that you would use these uncertain circumstances to add to your church across this land and across this world. I pray that you would use the difficulties to strengthen your church. And I pray that we would bring glory to Jesus by how we respond to the world, to the circumstances in it, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to our families, and even to our enemies. And Father, I pray most of all, and even today, that you would use your word to embolden your church by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can do according to your will in each and every circumstance we find ourselves in. Help us to rejoice in you amidst this trial and just to, to see you, to know you in it. Father, we're going to um, join our hands and hearts in, in spirit and we're going to pray together as you have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And use your word today to make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. It's going to be our text for today. And we're going to begin by reading those few verses. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us, that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And the grace of God teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope. There it is. Our message series entitled Hope Floats. And that's going to be the heart and soul of what we're looking at today. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. As I said, our series is Hope Floats, our message title today is the hope of being peculiar. 
And it comes from, that message title comes from, believe it or not, this passage, actually verse 14. You might say, well, Jerry, I don't see that there. But it is there, I assure you, in the original language. And it's even more evident, really, straight up in the King James Version translation of this passage. Let me read that verse 14 to you in the King James. It says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself, say it with me, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I present to you the hope of being peculiar. Now, perhaps that word peculiar is one that is somewhat unfamiliar to some, especially the younger ones in our fellowship. So I give you in Carta's dictionary definition, it's really quite good. The first two definitions of peculiar frame this concept quite well. The first definition of peculiar is unusual. Unusual or strange or unconventional. The second definition is unique. Belonging exclusively to or identified distinctly with somebody or something. Belonging exclusively. Church, who do we belong to? Jesus Christ. And it says identified distinctly with somebody. Who should we identify with? Yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are both, both those definitions, unusual and unique, are, are really good and they capture well the opportunity and the challenge that we have in Christ of being unusual and unique. In other words, peculiar. Folks, the heart of this passage, Titus chapter, chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, is really this question. What kind of people are we as we wait for our blessed hope, which is the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? And closely related, what kind of people ought we to be? And the answer here is a peculiar people, and I like that. Uh, I used to teach for quite a number of years, many of you know, and in a, a high school, public high school in, in north central Ohio, and, and quite frequently, actually, I, some of my students would say, and I never took this as an insult, maybe I should have, but they would say, Mr. Kissling, you are, you are just weird. And I would say, without hesitation, thank you. Because what I'm hearing you say is I'm different. And I like that because I don't want to be the same. You know, I find in our world today a cultural, I'll call it a bandwagoning, where everybody seems to try to fit in. And this is a bandwagon that professing Christians seem to jump on as readily as anyone else sometimes. And it's, it's, this is my observation. I didn't read this from any expert somewhere, but see if you can connect with this and see if you, your observation, this rings true. The world proclaims, be yourself, be different. But in their efforts, it comes off in, a, in an all the same, all the same kind of way. The macabre, the absurd, the grotesque, the extreme, the shocking. It's, it's sort of like, I can be more strange than you can, kind of contest. If you ever watch the Hunger Games, those series of movies, the culture 
of the capital in those movies I find more and more eerily similar to the philosophies and influences in our day. Gaudy, absurd, extreme, and everybody sort of just runs along with it. Everybody's doing it in the name of being different. Expressing their individuality, declaring their uniqueness. And I don't know about you, but I think when you live in a day when everybody wants to be extreme, is that not conformity in some way? Especially when motives, motivations are considered. To be peculiar in a way that says, look at me, notice me. You've never seen this before. Listen to what I say. Watch how I act. Look at how great I am. It it seems to me that the peer pressure of our day is for everyone to be peculiar, but in the same way. And that is a way that is about me. Judges 17.6 says, In those days Israel had no king, no leadership, and everyone did as he saw fit. The King James says everyone did what was right in his own eyes, doing their own thing. But there's certainly a bandwagoning effect in that. Does that make sense to you? Folks, listen, that is not the kind of peculiar that this passage describes. And if that is what you are pursuing, especially you young people, then you need to hear me. You need to hear me. And you need to examine yourself because if you're following that, then you're not following Jesus. Because he was peculiar in all the right ways. The kind of peculiar in Titus 2, 11 to 14 stands starkly opposed to the me first, look at me, notice me, narcissism that so dominates in our day. You know, the Greek word in the original text for peculiar in the King James Version, and it is translated, it's that phrase, if you're reading in the NIV, a people that are his very own. That's that's the word, this Greek word. That word is periosias. Let me say it again, because I messed it up that time. Periosias. Periosias, actually. And it means this, in the Greek, being beyond usual. Being beyond that which is usual. It means special. It means peculiar. And the absolute coolest thing about this unusual and unique state of being for the true believer is that it's not, it's not about me. Or it's not about me first. Or it's not about notice me at all. It's about Jesus. It's about him first. And it's about wanting people to notice him. It's indeed the most peculiar thing of all to see a person, especially a young person, who just overlooks himself or herself because he or she is so consumed and enamored and motivated by Jesus Christ and his person, and his love. Now that will make you peculiar in this world. To be about Jesus instead of about yourself, that's peculiar. And that is our hope. He is our hope. We have no hope in and of ourselves. So why would we live and move down that dead-end street 
of narcissistic, look at me, kind of life, sort of blended in and, and bland conformity to this world that masquerades as peculiarity when it's really all the same. It's not peculiar, it's not unusual and unique if everybody's doing it to be noticed, to have our desires met, to live for our comfort and control, for our pleasure. There is no hope in that. But let me tell you something, and you know this if you know Christ. Jesus is coming. He's coming. In verse 13, this is where our hope floats. We wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And folks, listen to me. This time, this time, he's coming as the ruling and reigning King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is not coming to die for sins this time, but to judge and to establish his kingdom. And that hope right there is only for the peculiar. And if you're not living that kind of peculiar, and if you're ashamed of, of Jesus Christ, then you're not looking forward to him coming back. And that ought to be an indicator of the condition of your faith. Can I say as we dig deeper into this passage of Scripture, I just I absolutely love Titus 2, 11 to 14. It's one of my favorite passages. I memorized this passage years ago as a teenager and I continue to go back to it because I felt its weight and its importance to my daily walk with Christ. And I have used this passage in many sermons and also in many one-on-one -on -one interactions with people through the years, but I have never preached solely on it before like I'm doing today, at least not that I can recall. And here's the coolest thing for me. I'm so excited to share with you today because in spite of the many times I've gone to this passage, I have never seen this theme of peculiar before this week. And I think it's, a, it's an absolute treasure for the days that we're living in now. It is a treasure, a treasure of hope. So let's kind of just dig into, go through part of this passage here. First, it starts out, it's about God's grace. For the grace of God, it says, that brings salvation. Can I remind you? If you're a, a born-again believer, and can I teach you, if you don't know Christ yet, that salvation is only and all and always about the grace of God. It has nothing to do with your goodness. It has nothing to do with your good works, not on its outset. I talked to a guy one time, it wasn't that long ago actually, and I asked him, and, and I'd, I'd invite you, if you know Christ, to grab onto this question. It's a simple question, but it's a way to open the doorway to spiritual things if, if people are willing to answer it. And it's this, very straightforward. So, to you, who is Jesus? To you, who is Jesus? And this is what this guy said. He said, I think it's all about how you treat people. I think it's all about how you treat people, and I try to do right by people. Now that's really good, and this guy, in my estimation, from what I've observed, really does attempt to treat people well. But even our best, even our best, at least looking in the mirror at myself, is, is most often about us. It's not about others. It's not about God. 
our best in and of ourself is pretty messed up compared to God's selfless holiness. Can I say to you, only God's grace brings salvation. And the answer to the question to you, who is Jesus, is not, I try to treat people right. The answer is, he is my crucified, dead, buried, and risen Savior. He's the avenue by which God's grace brings salvation to me and you. And repentance, if it's anything, is turning from believing that there are other ways, including my own sense of how I treat people, and turning to Jesus as my only way to be right with God. (coughs) Excuse me. It's all about God's grace, not me. So my counsel to you is to cast your soul and your life on the grace of God expressed through Jesus Christ. Titus 2.11 is the grace of God that brings salvation. And the next part of that first verse there, verse 11, says it's obvious. It says it's appeared to all men. Folks, the grace of God appears in countless ways through his natural revelation, through what he has made, and especially through his special revelation through Christ and through his word. And that grace, God's grace does a number of things according to this passage. Verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, what's it say there? It teaches us. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It teaches us. It's the grace of God that teaches us the discipline to say no as well as it teaches us the discipline to say yes and the wisdom to know the difference. If you see a professing Christian that's all caught up in the philosophies of this relativistic me-first culture as we described before with no regard to personal purity and holiness, then you're not witnessing the grace of God at work. Because God's grace, yes, it forgives, but God's grace also teaches us and empowers us to follow Christ. Grace is never a license to live like hell on my way to heaven. It just isn't. In Romans 6, Paul reiterates that. He states it twice in verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Folks, it's the grace of God that the Holy Spirit of power and purity lives in those who believe. He is a gift to us of God's grace to tabernacle in us. And that spirit gives us the power to break the bondage of addictive and habitual sin. Grace teaches and empowers us to say no and to say yes to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives that kind of peculiar in this present age. And if your kind of grace just gives a a wink and a nod to sin and death, figuring, ah, well, God will forgive me anyway if I go along and just fit in into everything my friends, quote, are all about. They'll forgive me for that. That's what grace does. That's not grace. That's gutless conformity, but it's not grace. Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, that kind of peculiar, peculiar like everybody else, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how grace teaches us to live while we wait. 
Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, he's coming back. He's coming back, and it could be, it even seems to be soon. And I think when he finally arrives, it's going to be a surprise. A lot of how this unfolds, it's going to be a surprise to the dispensationalists. And it's going to be a surprise to the covenantalists, just how it all unfolds. But it's it's going to unfold. But for today, and for me and you, I'm more concerned with how I wait than I am how and when he comes. How and when he comes is in his hands, but how I wait is dependent on just what kind of peculiar I want to be. Peculiar like Jesus or peculiar like this world. Verse 14 tells you his purpose. That Jesus did what he did. He gave himself for us for this reason, to redeem us, to buy us out from all that, from all the wickedness and to purify for himself. Here's the word, a people that are his very own, peculiar, unusual, and unique people. And that's a people that are eager and zealous to do what is good. And we're eager for that because it points people to Jesus. Last point on on my outline there is what kind of peculiar. And I would ask you, do you want to be the kind of the Hunger Games kind of peculiar? Will you do almost anything to be noticed? You know, I love 1 John 2.15. John wrote this. He said, don't love the world or anything in the world. And then when you get to the verse 17, the end of that paragraph, if you will, he tells you why you shouldn't love the world or anything in the world. Verse 17, because the world and its desires pass away. That's why. They mean nothing in the end. Loving the world and conforming to it is the surest and quickest way to just eternal worthlessness. Not that kind of peculiar. So what kind of peculiar? Instead, be Titus 2, 11 to 14 kind of peculiar, one that surrenders to the grace of God to forgive you, one that surrenders to the grace of God that allows the gift of his spirit to tabernacle, to live in and with you, one that surrenders to the grace and the spirit of God to teach you the discipline to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and learns the discipline to say yes to following Christ. Grace that teaches, grace that teaches while you wait for Jesus to return. Jesus coming back to fulfill his kingdom. And I'd remind you that his kingdom is what you embraced when you believed. And your hope is to see it established. And while you wait for that hope, you live out the reality of your citizenship in that kingdom of belonging to Jesus and Jesus belonging to you. That will make you selflessly peculiar. The hope of being peculiar. Sign me up. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your patience with us. I thank you for the power of your grace. Your Holy Spirit, Lord, that dwells within those who have believed and continually invites and encourages us to follow after Christ, to seek him, to sit at his feet, to learn from him, to love him, to be changed by him. Father, I thank you that you're a God of of relationship, that you're a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just giving yourself away within yourself to other, and that you have, have given yourself away to us through Christ on the cross, through creation, through all the, the blessings that you pour out daily on this planet, just to sustain it, to give life and beauty. You're continually inviting and drawing us to yourself, us to be your people, a peculiar people. The world calls that weird when we follow Christ. And it can can mock and make fun sometimes. They just don't understand. And I pray that our security, our confidence, our sense of community we would get from you and from your church and that we would be bold. I ask, Lord, that you would pour out your boldness even as you did there in Acts chapter 2. Your 120 or so followers were gathered and they prayed for boldness to speak your word even though they were being threatened by the powerful authorities of that day. They gave you their threats and they said, enable us to to speak your word with great boldness and you did that and thousands were born again. I pray that you'd do that again, Lord, that you'd pour out your spirit of boldness on us that we would desire with all our hearts to be a peculiar people, unique, unusual, because of Jesus. Because we uniquely, distinctly belong to him. He bought us for his own. Our bodies are your temple. They're not instruments that we use for for our pleasure. They're yours for you to dwell in. Father, help me to remember that every second of the day. Help us to remember that, to own it, to seek to be your peculiar people so that the world has a chance to see Jesus in us. So many times in our churches, the world looks on and doesn't see much different. Doesn't see much different. Father, help them see different in us. Help them see different in us. See Jesus in us. You've done everything, everything. As your name promises, Yahweh, I am all that's necessary as the occasion arises in your life. You've done that. You've been all that's necessary as the occasion of sin and death arose on the human race. You sent your word, you sent Jesus, he he died in our place. He rose from our grave. You've given us your life. 
and we give it back to you and ask that you'd, you'd forgive once again us of being fence riders of wanting to have a foot in the church, a foot in the world so that we got to fit in wherever we're at. Father, help us to embrace the peculiarity of Jesus as our own, to desire it, to love it, to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.